On Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing. We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio. We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. So this is uh, our last episode of On Your Wavelength. I am Cristiano Maticardi. I am a uh, Nature Communication editor based in Berlin. Uh, we have been doing this podcast for quite a few months now. Uh, this is, um, it's called On Your Wavelength Podcast. Uh, we normally invite editors and authors to discuss about some recent paper published in the Nature Portfolio. We, me and Ankita Neben from Nature Review Physics have been producing this podcast since May. We produced uh, five or six episodes right now. Uh, you can actually check it out on Acast, Google Podcasts. Um, you know, just you, you only have to Google it on your wavelength and you can actually access to all of our content we've been creating during this month. Today we will have, uh, as I said, my, uh, this last episode, but just we will have uh, a special guest from, uh, from Greece. Uh, he, um, he's been publishing a paper in, in communication engineering, but stay tuned uh, until the end because we'll actually go through all of the details of the uh, of the uh, of the topic we we've been uh, is been published recently in communication engineering our um, uh, guest is uh, charis hello charis could you would hello. Like to introduce yourself a little bit okay i'm haris mesaritakis i am from greece I am from the University of the Aegean. Um, it's a university in Greece, in the beautiful island of Samos. And uh, I'm working on photonics and special integrated photonics and neuromorphic photonics to be more precise. So that's it. Nice, nice. Actually, Charis is the main character of this show today, and he actually is here to explain why we should be interested in a topic that sometimes is like the name it's the, the name itself is kind of scaring neuromorphic computing and uh, all of the story and actually tell all of the story behind uh, their achievements their achievement published recently in communication uh, communication engineering so uh, tell us a little bit more on neuromorphic computing how did you, did you start working on neuromorphic computing and if you can actually give us a feel, give give us a feeling on uh, how big is the size of the network of scientists working in this field right now? Okay, so um, actually, um, the, the how I started working on neuromorphic computing dates a couple of years back, at around two thousand and nine. I was doing my PhD, and I was wondering that everything that had to do with photonics resolved around communications. So it has to do with uh, ultra-fast optical communications. And I really wanted to put photonics and use them for something completely different. So I was checking and I came across a really interesting paper describing about reservoir computing and optical neural networks. And this blew my mind because it was something completely different. It's using optical, the optical domain, light and photonic components to do processing instead of just transferring information from one point to the other. So I start reading the paper, start searching around. At this point of time, actually, neuromorphic photonics was um, a, a cult. Two groups, two people around the around the globe, two or three groups in in the EU, in the in Europe, 
one or two groups in the um, in, in the states. Although that uh, a couple of years back in the, during the 80s, there was a great blooming of optical computing using bulk optical setups, but this um, stopped. And again, in 2005, 2006, the, the interest in this field rekindled, possibly due to the onset of machine learning evolution. So they started working also in this field. So this is how I first came across uh, this field. Currently, things have really grown a lot um, because I can describe a little bit what is neuromorphic and uh, what is the basic idea behind it. So it's a field that is the, 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 the word itself consists of two words, neuron, which is a Greek word, um, and morph, which means shape. So it's to engineer, to design something that has the shape, the operation of a neuron. So the basic difference compared to machine learning is that we don't generate an algorithm, we don't generate um, a processing technique. We try to build something, a system or a component that emulates a neuron. So, and when we say photonic, neuromorphic photonics, we mean that we use photonic components in order to do so. So this is, this is the basic idea. And uh, because actually we build hardware for machine learning applications and for the AI revolution, it's, uh, it's going really big. So from uh, 2009, that we were two or three groups working or being interested in the field. Now it's uh, a buzzword um, all around the States and uh, Asia and Europe uh, discussing about how we can do neuromorphic and how we can uh, move beyond conventional computing techniques and achieve biological efficiency, mimic the efficiency of the neurons in order to do uh, computation now. Interesting, actually. Maybe it could be actually also related to the how a miniaturization of optoelectronic devices, plasmonic devices, photonic devices, has been pushed again just uh, toward when uh, new techniques of fabrication. So uh, maybe it is it has experienced this uh, this this push during the last ten years because of this also because of this uh, uh, easier nanofabrication of these neurons because it seems anything but uh, uh, but simple probably just building this kind of systems. And so could you actually, you, you tell us a little bit how, what is neuromorphic computing and, but how does it actually works? Could you bring some examples of recent developments? Okay. So the, the, the basic idea is that uh, when you try to implement a machine learning algorithm or a neural network, then you do it with a conventional digital computing system, which is not designed to operate as the algorithm dictates to operate. So the basic idea is to transfer the, the neural, op neural operation directly in the hardware. So execution of the algorithm is not native now. So it's, uh, it's done by hardware that is optimized to do this specific task. So recent examples, there is a growing um, activity, both using microelectronics, phase changing materials. There's a lot of activity in this area in order to generate memory stores devices that uh, they have some neural properties that are quite critical in order to design such schemes. And on the other hand, photonics, it's another really interesting platform because it has some inherent merits like um, uh, ultra high bandwidth, really low power consumption, 
as you said about the nanofabrication and the new techniques that becoming more and more mature, make these technologies more available now nowadays. And uh, of course, parallelizations through wavelength or time or space multiplexing. So um, there is a, a push towards this. So there are different neuromorphic platforms, different platforms that they try to mimic the neurons, meaning that you have uh, building blocks able to generate spikes like a biological system and process information in a brain-like fashion. And I think that uh, it is pushed uh, towards different complementary directions at the same time. There are really interesting works in photonics using frequency combs in order to do convolution. There is a really interesting work with uh, photonic reservoir computing in order to process information in really complex systems. There is a, a really interesting work with um, nanoelectronics and memristic device doing the same thing, generating neural light crossbars in order to do processing. So there is a significant uh, activity spanning all over the electronics, microelectronics, uh, plasmonics, photonics domain, all working towards this direction currently. Very, very interesting. Just it's kind of, it, it seems to me still actually at its infancy, I could say. Uh, mm -hmm. And so just there's a lot of stuff just that, that can be developed in the future. So, but about outlooks, we will talk about later. So now you, we are here, of course, to understand what's neuromorphic computing, but also to talk about your recent work published in communication engineering. So uh, what's the framework of your work and how did you come up with, the, with this idea? So just with, with the idea to give a further boost to uh, to the to this no morphing platforms as the title of our podcast says. Okay, so uh, our work is um, is about uh, uh, a system, a technique, where we employ uh, a simple filter or a more sophisticated filter uh, in order to pre-process a high bandwidth signal. Um, <clears throat> in order to uh, provide it or, uh, or process it uh, in a neural-like fashion. The, the idea, it's really strange how we came up with it, but um, because this, this is not just a, a specific system. Actually, this is a technique that depending on the way that you set up your system, the same component, these multiple filters in parallel that spectrally decompose the signal can be used either as a full-scale neural network, or photonic neural network, uh, like a reservoir computing system, or a recurrent neural network operating directly in the optical domain. Or by slightly changing a little bit the way that you handle this optical slicing technique, you can use it as a photonic accelerator, which is a, a really interesting point, meaning that it's, a, it's, a, it's an add-on, it's a photonic add-on in order to pre-process the signal and uh, renders um, computation by a typical neural network more efficient and more easy. So uh, we have studied this and we can see that it's really suitable in order to do convolution in the optical domain, which is a really critical uh, operation, especially for image processing. Uh, we can slightly tune it in order to operate like um, a time, uh, time series analysis tool in order to process optical signals for optical communications, like in the in the in the work that uh, we published in uh, communication engineering, and it's a it's a generic concept. So um, the the basic idea how 
Uh, it was evolved. It's really strange because we were starting to work on something completely different, and we came up with something completely different, <laughs> which is, I think, the typical case. Yeah, it's actually it's, so, it's actually it's actually the way science works in every yeah, everyone, the way. everyone science is like just is believes that we in lab just uh, uh we i said we just because i've been been a scientist before being being an editor so uh, uh just it's full of it's a word idealized word full of eureka moments in which just every day you discover yeah. something new but just it's completely it's completely idealized way uh, in which we think about scientists but so just can you can you tell me can you tell us uh, which was the the, the the flow so then just which okay. were the okay. when, when when did you stop some sometimes okay. you stopped and just okay. say just we will actually drop this project and then just you suddenly find a way. Yeah, that, that's it. That, that's the that's the, the flow actually. So um, we started working on a, a typical problem with photonic neural networks, which is the activation functions. In typical neural networks, you have to have an activation function, non-linear function, um, after your neuron. So this is not easily done without active components. So you have to uh, pay the price of co power consumption in order to do so. So we were. Trying, we are devising an alternative scheme in order to circumvent and achieve a nonlinear response without consuming any power. So, um, in order to implement the reservoir computing scheme, so we were aiming for a specific reservoir computing architecture for a specific task. So, the basic idea is that, um, uh, unfortunately, in neuromorphic photonics, a lot of scientists try to they try to understand how neural networks work. And they tried to copy this principle of operation directly in the optical domain. But, you know, they use negative and positive values. We use complex values. We have light. So we have coherency. So everything is a little bit different. So the basic idea is why stick to a real amplitude signal and not play around with the face of the sigma? So imprint all the information in the face domain. So the basic idea is that if I have a filter and I phase modulate my signal around this resonant frequency, then actually what I'm going to do, this phase variation will cause a detuning compared to the central frequency of the filter. And these frequency variations will in, be imprinted in a nonlinear manner to the amplitude of the signal. And it was, you know, a eureka moment. This is really interesting because I can transfer the phase information to the amplitude in a nonlinear way. So if my information is in the phase domain, then I can have a nonlinear function without any power penalty. And we started working on it, and she provided really nice results. So we could solve a lot of tasks, toy tasks, really efficiently. So we surpassed the state of the art. But the basic problem is that when we try to put more filters in order to put more neurons, more nodes in the system, we saw that uh, we, we didn't get any performance boost. Okay. And this was because actually our filters coincided. So if you put a lot of filters one after the other, the power gra gradually is decreased. So um, the signal-to-noise ratio is stable, so and the neural network start confusing things. And the, the second eureka was, okay, why don't we do detune the filters? So put a filter that targets a specific wavelength or wavelength of the signal. So we started spectrally decomposing the signal, but we didn't do it in order to decompose it. We did it just to save a little bit of power. But when we start, you know, doing again the simulations, we found that the performance was radically better. And then uh, I said, that it's okay. We have this result. It's okay. 
And uh, my colleague Adonis, that uh, sh should be here, but unfortunately he couldn't join this podcast today, uh, he proposed, okay, let's try it for telecommunication, because he has a really good telecommunication background. So, okay, let's use it for, for telecom applications. And we tried to solve the typical um, int uh, intensity modulation direct detection problem with uh, dispersion of the power fading effect using such a neural optical neural network. And we got uh, results that we couldn't believe, actually, because dispersion takes all the information from the amplitude and transfers directly to the phase domain. So this detuning thing and the spectral decomposition provides a lot of information. So even if we use few filters, we get really nice results. So nice results we, that we couldn't believe them. Actually, we checked and rechecked all the computations, all the simulations, because we were sure that we have made a grievous mistake, that we have missed something really critical because we could solve really difficult tasks with marginal power consumption and a really, really simple scheme. It was so simple that we couldn't believe it provided such nice results. So we shifted our research towards the telecom domain and start thinking that this is something completely different. And we start understanding how this thing is not just a, a simple stuff that does a frequency detuning, but if it has some, um, let's say, it's compatible with biological system, if there is a resemblance. So we start checking again when we found that this simple approach is one of the key features that the brain does. It actually uses a filter in order to extract a spectral feature, and then it fires spikes depending on this feature. So in a way, we reinvented in a peculiar way something that our brain has invented uh, a couple of hundreds of thousand years ago. Yeah, just kind of, <laughs> just like um, almost, um, you know, surprisingly, you didn't you didn't plan actually to do this. You just you no. you 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 plan to do something else, and then just you, you obtain. Actually, this is how science works sometimes. So just this is really interesting to know about it and uh, to know because of course uh, I think most of the science uh, most of the science that has been. Uh, the greatest science, the greatest developments, been actually achieved in this uh, uh, in this way. So, which is actually the most difficult part you had to uh, you had to overcome? You know, just some something that just yeah, this is something that we won't we won't we won't get over it. I think two things. I mean, the first thing is convince ourselves that we haven't done uh, a mistake. <clears throat> we were checking, cross-checking, um, me and my colleague Adonis and our students again and again, that we haven't done something uh, strange to get these results. Um, the, the second part is that we actually struggled in order to do experimental confirmation of the idea, because it was so simple. But if you want to demonstrate the true merits of the system, you have to use really high bandwidth signals. So using signals with multiple hundreds of gigabit per second rates and be able to see how this thing can actually mitigate all the transmission impairments. And this uh, equipment is not easy to have. So it was really difficult finding a solution in order to uh, have um, an experimental validation. So what we did, what we did um, and we plan to do also, is that um, fortunate for us, uh, we are working on two EU-based um, research projects, and uh, in uh, one of them, 
It's about it's around neuromorphic photonics and neuromorphic computing using reconfigurable photonics. So we have um, a really good collaboration with partners from, uh, especially from uh, UPV in Spain. So uh, we described our idea. We described how this thing works. They were really interested, <clears throat> and uh, they have this uh, emulation platform where they are able to emulate in a physical manner their system, their photonic chip, their photonic integrated chip. So we could send, actually design uh, our system using a physically accurate platform and test this hypothesis using semi-real conditions. So this, is, this was the, the first thing needed to understand the platform, be able to transfer all the, all the data in their platform and do the calculations and see that it actually works. And currently we are in the most challenging, um, challenging time because we are going to do the actual experiment. So we will um, just emulate the physical system, but uh, we will have the, the photonic integrated chip and we will do the experiment properly. And, and are, are those sure? Are those um, just out, out of the script? Like, just I know I, I read that you, you are a technical manager for two Euro, European projects for the uh, now, uh, Neuteric and Prometheus uh, projects. How, how um, neuromorphic computing and quantum computing are those uh, um, are those systems also uh, you know just this working uh, this works also developed in this framework or uh, just uh, how how is going how is it going with the developments of of neuromorphic computing and quantum computing in Europe? I say I would say. Okay, there's a lot of interest. Actually, the, the Neuteric project um, involves about uh, neuromorphic computers for uh, really ultra-fast analysis of uh, biomedical images, biomedical data. So behind this experiment with the cytometer, we have a high-flow cytometer using STEM technique that produces really fast with a femtosecond laser images of, of cells. And we use a neuromorphic computing in order to process these signals in real time. So in Neoteric, we do, let's say, strict neuromorphic computing with uh, photonics, ma mainly for medical applications. So the telecom uh, field is something that is really interesting, really fit to the concept, so we add it to the mixture. In Prometheus, we do something a little bit different, that we try to design a common platform that could accommodate neuromorphic computing having photonic synapses, connections, meaning connecting, and actually neurons. So we will have lasers on chip that will generate spikes in order to um, have a full neural system. You will have the neurons and the connections of the neurons on the optical domain directly. And use the same chip in order to do quantum computing and uh, quantum security. So it's a, that's a common framework. It is my personal belief that there is a lot of investment in the neuromorphic field because it's really attractive, something interesting, and it's quite multidisciplinary. So all exotic and interesting technologies in a fabrication level could be easily integrated with the neuromorphic concept. That's why it's so attractive. But it's my personal belief that in the near future, quantum and neuromorphic will not be something different or something competing each other. Probably will be something complementary. Actually, with this point, we will come back later because we—it's—it's it's kind of the outlooks of this of this podcast, and I will actually 
we will actually come back later and discuss a little bit more. But then, but then now, just about your about your manuscript, about your uh, your uh, the processing of your manuscript. As I promised you, just as I, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, we also have the editors of the manuscript. So just we want to give you uh, the, the broader view as possible on the manuscript processing inside the nature portfolio. Uh, um, uh, the nature portfolio so just uh, we have Miranda here with us uh, and she is uh, the uh, uh, associate editor of communication engineering uh, engineering yes and uh, and you handle the these manuscripts for uh, um, yes together with the uh, an external board member isn't it yes correct thanks for having me yeah no problem could you actually tell us how did you become an editor just just to have just to a career let's say. For me, it was a very linear transition. So during my PhD, I worked a lot in science communication and doing outreach projects and community work. So becoming an editor was a very, very natural progression in terms of my career. Nice. And for communications engineering, I was very lucky to be kind of at the right place and at the right time. Because I was, as I was finishing my PhD, communications engineering was in the whispers and about to launch. So they happened to be hiring right as I was finishing up my studies. And for me yeah. in particular, this journal was quite exciting because it was the Nature Portfolio's first truly dedicated space for applied science and engineering. I do publish engineering works in other journals, such as Nature Communications, Nature Energy, etc. But this was the first truly dedicated space for this type of work. Yeah. And the scale is quite broad, the scope which was also very exciting as somebody who loves multidisciplinary work. We publish everything from the nanoscale up to large infrastructure, large infrastructure projects. And on top of that, we do it all entirely open access. Yeah, I, this is this is another really great point because, of course, with all of this open access transition, this could be a, a topic for uh, discussions and podcasts for years, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's communication engineering is the first engineering full and uh, dedicated uh, journal and initial portfolio for engineering topics. So just and you embrace quite a big challenge because, of course, you uh, are only uh, three editors at, at communication engineering. So just you have quite a lot of work to do right now. Yes, yes. A lot of the work that I do is actually dispelling mythos about the nature portfolio. <laughs> we have such a strong presence in fundamental science and conceptual advances that oftentimes I'll invite reviewers that say, yes, this is a great work of engineering, but it is not fundamental enough for the nature portfolio. Yeah, true. So yeah. Uh, we're out here changing opinions today. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, really nice. I just I, I invite you, everyone who is listening and just thinking about a career as uh, as an editor, just to, uh, just to to try it out because it's really great work. And just Miranda can say yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, talking about the paper, how did you uh, this paper on neuromorphic computing just you handled? What did you what, what was your feeling? What did you think about when it first landed in your desk? So thankfully, we have a wonderful, talent, wonderfully talented editorial board member in the field of neuromorphic engineering. His name is Damien Kierlios, and he's at the Université Paris-Saclay, and he was able to do our initial assessment. So initially, uh, whenever it very first landed on our desk, we were very surprised to find that it was written a bit like an experimental paper, even though the paper was mostly or entirely simulation. So. That was a little bit surprising and something that yeah. we had to tease out in our initial assessments. But overall, we were very interested in the performance. 
And we also found that the applications demonstrated, such as inferring the behavior of unseen data and mitigating transitions in impairments from things like chromatic dispersion and the Kerr effect, were a key differentiator from other similar works in the field and the reason we sent it out to peer review. Great. Great. And could you explain me a little bit better how those this interaction between editors, in-house in editors and external board members works in communication engineering? Yes, so external board members are people who are active researchers in the field who assess about three manuscripts for us a, a month in their field of expertise. So the way that a, a paper works is that if it comes into our desk, we see that we have an external board member in the specific field that the paper kind of falls into. And then we ask them if they would like to assess the paper for us. And they are looking for things like novelty, impact for the field, and using their expert uh, opinion yeah. if they think it will be impactful. And okay. then this this also helps us to find reviewers more quickly and help speed up the editorial process. Yeah. About reviewers, actually, you just, you, 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 you get me, uh, me hang. So just how did you choose the reviewers for this paper? So just uh, which, which was your, uh, your, your main um, aspect that you wanted to assess uh, on, on this paper performance? Uh, the, the scientific soundness of, uh, of the uh, of the war demonstration. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you uh, choose the reviewers for this paper? Well, of course, all papers that we publish have to be scientifically sound. That is the number yeah. one criteria, sound and reproducible. But for this paper in particular, we absolutely needed people with expertise in photonic reservoir computing. But because of some of the machine learning and the um, other kind of bells and whistles of this paper, we also had one reviewer in machine learning and optics. Nice. And how was the peer review process? Was it hard? And this is actually also a question to, to Charles, just to know if, if there, there will be, uh, you know, just sometimes you, you have papers before peer review and after peer review completely different. So just, <laughs> you know, just uh, first the impression of Miranda, just was it hard in, uh, also for you to assess from the editor perspective? Yes, so the peer review was a very mixed bag this time around, and I encourage everybody to look at the transparent peer review file available online. So, but for us, editorially, although the reviewers had substantial comments, we felt that their specific suggestions were actually doable with a major revision. So, for this reason, we invited a major revision, and I'm happy to say that after we did this, and the authors kindly responded to the peer review comments, we were right, and it was able to be published. So just as a major revision, that sounds quite a big work, isn't it, Charles? I don't know, I didn't see the peer review file, but just you can tell us. Uh, listening to Miranda, it sounds more difficult than how we felt it. <laughs> we felt because um, quite, um, it's not so, the, the, uh, from, from, from our point of view, the, both reviewers were really encouraging about the work. So this was the word positive to begin with, at least the comments sent to us. Don't know about the comments sent to you. Um, and uh, actually, the interesting part is that they, uh, the things that they mentioned were all to the point. Not really difficult to answer, but things that were indeed missing from the manuscript and it could really enhance readability. And the most interesting part was the comments from the second reviewer that they, he was not too much in photonics, but he... I assume that he had a really good background in neuroscience and neuro uh, computation neuroscience or something like that, because he was really familiar with these terms. And actually, his points were really accurate. 
and he forced us in a way to treat you know our system more thoroughly from a theoretical point of view understand the basic principles and how it's not just a like a like a you know a component that does the right thing but we are not so sure about why it does this thing so we have to dig a little bit deeper to understand the the theoretical concept of this and how this changes and this is really changed um it was really enlightening for us because it provided us new ideas of how we could use it so currently we're using the same system in order to do image processing and we get really nice results and the the, the idea of using in such a manner and exploiting these features came from the comments of the reviewers so from this perspective we are really happy to receive them yeah sometimes actually peer review process actually get the, uh, the the peer review process end up with a with a better manuscript at the end because of course yes. maybe just you you have never you didn't think about it uh, of, of doing this process doing this calculation doing this uh, this verification or just corroboration of your data so uh, it's it's uh, it's always really nice to hear about these stories and uh, to Miranda just uh, in, and also to uh, um, to, um, uh, to Charles just which was the major concern in the peer review uh, process just so just the, you which you have uh, which had really uh, hard time to solve so just i don't know if if, so, if this kind of question will actually be the same from miranda and <laughs> and, and Charles, I, I would suggest from miranda would have been like just more problems on editorial side but just I know which yeah, I, I suspect my answer might be quite different. Uh, so for us, because we're interested in things like reproducibility and the soundness of the scientific results, um, we had a couple of we had a question in the peer review from reviewer one that was asking about the methodology, specifically comparing the simulated results to experimental results from the literature. Reviewer one felt that these comparisons may have been unfair due to possible sources of noise in the experimental works. And for us, further, from reviewer three, uh, they wanted to know where the nonlinearity arose in the system. So for us, as editors, in order to confirm sound science, these absolutely had to be satisfied before publication. Great. And uh, so is, is, is the same, is the same uh, issue like uh, for you? Uh... I think that um, indeed the thing that the the comments, at least for us, we didn't think it would be really difficult to answer. But um, the most difficult one was uh, to actually scan the whole literature and find, you know, because everyone uses a different methodology in order to evaluate the performance. Yeah, true. Uh, this is this is a really big uses, issue. Yeah, or he he or she uses um, a different metric in order, you know, to make. It's his or her work a little bit better or uh, to present more um, elevated performance. So we have to scan, especially for the telecom, because we didn't have, uh, you know, um, actual experiments, so we had to emulate everything. On one hand, we have to do simulations that were like an experiment. That's why the paper gave this impression, because we have to be precise as possible with the simulation to be convincing. But on the other side, it was really difficult to actually, you know, measure so what we did is we we found not experimental data, but we scanned the whole literature to find simulation data. Okay. And so the generic uh, principle. So this was the most uh, difficult part in order to 
generate the proper metrics and adapt the different metrics in order to compare them in a unified framework. So this was the most challenging, let's say. Uh, this this uh, concerns also confirm the fact that this this field is quite in its infancy because of course everyone is actually uh, measuring and uh, evaluating the system from with, with the uh, metrics that they feel more comfortable with. So, and and maybe someone has some metrics, someone else uh, has different metrics. So just this is this standardization is something that will come with the, will, I think will come in the future and will come soon. And uh, probably something like we editors can actually push something in, in, in the change. For example, in niche communications, uh, when there was this exploding of lazing and uh, all of this lazing system, in niche communication, we have uh, a, 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 um, a laser checklist that will actually you have to you have to file all of the lazy all of the lasers uh, um, some specific parameters that will help reviewers to understand whether or not this this was lazy or not. So just it's it's always the challenge with new and uh, and uh, new topics and new uh, topic at the infancy. So. I think yep. it's also important to note that this is a huge challenge for editors as well, especially in engineering and applied sciences, because we are interested in the application and part of assessing application is performance. We are using the same comparisons as the scientists to assess whether or not these performances are true advances. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly this. So um, I would like, I would really like to thanks uh, you both for this. Uh, Really interesting chat, uh, really insightful uh, chat on, on neuromorphing computing. I hope to host more uh, up, uh, episodes on neuromorphing computing since it's since a really since a really interesting topic. And I would like to remind remember everyone that this podcast is being produced in the framework of Berlin Science Week, that is uh, run from uh, the first uh, to the tenth of November. And of course, for those who are in Berlin, just are invited to uh, kindly participate. In. And also, there's other uh, um, events that are events that will be uh, broadcasted online. So we thank the organizer to allow us to take part in uh, in it, and we look forward for future collaborations. Uh, of course, uh, I will close this podcast uh, to um, talk with uh, with only one question. But uh, first, I want to remind you that every uh, um, single episode of this podcast is available on, on Acast or, or Google Podcasts. You can actually tune in. You can actually Google it on your wavelength, and you you will find all of this podcast, all of this episode that we've been uh, covering this years. So we we talked about uh, bosom picks uh, for for paper uh, published in Nature. We talked about. Uh, um, we have a, a paper published in Nature, I think. Yes, we talk we uh, Nature Physics. Uh, we we talk about uh, some paper published in Nature, also Nature Communications, uh, also Communication Physics. So just we we have we have covered different uh, different papers, different uh, journals uh, with different editors and different points of view. So I really suggest you to follow us, follow us, and leave a comment. But and so we I will I would like to finish this talk with a question and. Uh, it's kind of an outlook. I, I always do this question: How do you see? How do you feel will be these fields in uh, in five years from now, five ten years from now? It's still actually uh, be. Uh, uh, it's, it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, um, it's a question that doesn't have to be true or uh, or false. It's a question that just is kind of. Uh, uh, one one can actually think about everything. It's, it's, it should not be either scientific. It's like 
So for me, I think what uh, Tara said earlier about the combination of quantum computing and neuromorphic is going to be very big in the future. As an editor, I have kind of a high-level view of the field. I see a lot of different literature, and I have to be kind of up to date on it, and this is something that I've heard more than once. Yeah, nice, nice. For you, Charles? I'm the neuromorphic computing. I, I think that uh, in the near future, actually, the field will find its proper size because now it's expanding, and at some point it will start retracting again, and it will find its proper place in the in the domain. Uh, but I think that the two key steps on one hand is uh, the merge of neuromorphic and quantum and quantum neuromorphic systems. Um, I think this is the, I agree with uh, Miranda, this is the, the next big thing. Um, that's why we're working on Prometheus on this. And um, the second thing is that I think that um, neuromorphic will uh, cut its ends from the typical machine learning discipline so it will be inspired by the neural by the neural networks but the, it will start following its own unique path exploring the merits of uh, the physics of the different components that they're going to use so and the third and the third thing that i, I think that it will happen is that uh, probably neuromorphic will not replace conventional computing but it will find a way in order to be merged together okay so act like an accelerator or uh, a pre-processing or a processing states in order to speed up the whole process. Yeah, that's a really so important point that... because someone hack actually can be brought to think, okay, this is, will be, this will replace completely normal computer, but just normal computer already uh, are still, you know, just really efficient in a way, just so just it can yeah. actually be, uh, it can be a further boost to, to normal computer. So uh, I, I have the feeling that just uh, future developments, future uh, um, outlooks will actually come from a, 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 an organic growth that will involve cross-disciplinary collaboration, multidisciplinary collaborations. So uh, we will actually uh, uh, as an editor, we'll actually uh, have a look at it just to put an eye on it and just as uh, to, to help all of the researchers that will actually want uh, want to actually have this cross collaboration uh, in place. So um, I thanks again, uh, Miranda and Charis to be today in this podcast. And um, you can actually find this podcast as uh, audio only on ACAST in the, in the next few days. So uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time with uh, the podcast talk on a new wireless. Thank you very much, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.